0: Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Au. Leadership is harder than it looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into the great unknown, this is the podcast for you.
1: Yishi is an entrepreneur and investor. He was born in China and grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. His first job out of college was as an investment banking analyst at Goldman Sachs in San Francisco. He worked for three years at a fundamental value hedge fund thereafter. After 20 years in the Bay Area, he moved to Boston in 2016 to pursue an MBA at MIT Sloan. While at MIT, he co-founded DeepBench, the company connects customers with experts on any topic in any industry. In 2020, he transitioned away from being the full-time CEO of Deep Bench. He started a startup studio called Optionality Partners. He uses his own capital and that of a few close friends to build businesses and invest in companies. He also blogs at the intersection of investing, entrepreneurship, and personal growth. Currently, Yushi lives in LA.
0: Well, welcome aboard to the show, Ishii. Ishii is a longtime friend from our UC Berkeley days, but also has had an interesting career across Goldman Sachs uh, to running a startup as a founder and CEO, all the way to optionality partners today. And I think, I think this journey is not just interesting from a career perspective, but also interesting from a you know, personal history and you know what's it like to be in, uh, in the trenches together, at least living together as founder roommates in Boston together. So Ishii, welcome aboard.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Yeah. So you should, you know, for those who don't know you yet, the same way that I do intimately, I guess, (laughs) with you. how would you uh, describe your professional journey?
1: Yeah. uh, Good question. So I, um, I guess probably good to give you a little bit of life context, give everyone a little bit of life context. So I was born in China, moved to the U.S. when I was six years old. And I grew up in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, went to UC Berkeley undergrad, and then I worked for five years in finance after graduating in 2011. The first two years was in investment banking at Goldman Sachs. I was in San Francisco. I was a a generalist. And then I spent three years at a small kind of um, fundamental value hedge fund called Solstein Capital Also in San Francisco, when I was at Solstein in my free time on nights and weekends, I kind of caught the entrepreneurial bug in short. And I started working on side projects. And um, unfortunately, those side projects didn't really go anywhere, entrepreneurial side projects. But I did realize I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I applied to business school and went off to MIT Sloan in the fall of 2016. And uh, with the idea that I wanted to start a business, find co-founders and just go through that whole process and just see what it's like, test myself. Fortunately, I actually stumbled across a a pretty neat idea. I started an expert network called DeepBench, where we were using technology to make things more efficient, and we were able to find customers while we were in school, and we were able to um, basically grow revenues, uh, significant revenues, while we were students. And we hired employees during school. We raised a little bit of angel money, accelerator money after we graduated. From 2018, kind of June 2018 until last year, I was the full-time CEO founder of DeepBench. And last year, kind of right around when COVID hit, I decided to take a step back. I actually transitioned away from the CEO role at DeepBench. And I uh, also moved across the country. I was in Boston at the time, and I moved to California, Los Angeles. and. I was figuring out what I wanted to do. And I'm still in the process of figuring it out. But I decided that I wanted to stay in the realm of kind of early stage entrepreneurship. But I also wanted to kind of use the investor skill set that I had kind of built up over the years prior to starting Deep Bench. And I'm kind of like created this hybrid kind of role for myself. I'm like, part investor, part entrepreneur. And that's kind of what optionality partners is, the best way to call it is like a startup studio, or you could think of it like an incubator. So that's kind of a quick three, four minute summary of uh, what I'm doing now and how I got here.
0: Amazing. I think there's so much to unpack along the way. And there's a couple of things we want to talk about. I guess, you know, I think the first one up front was, you know, let's talk about how you and I met, right? <laughs> you know, so if I remember correctly, it was at UC Berkeley. I had been invited to a party, I believe, at your place, or at least that's how we connected. And I had brought some board games and we had a good time. And I remember that both you and I did not. I think I won that first game and then we kind of made a date to like play again, right? And we had to play a few times until you finally won After and after which you won and <laughs> you never played again, right? <laughs> I think.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah i'm i'm a bit of a board game nerd as as are you and you introduced me to this game called citadels i yeah, don't know. it's quite quite good i was uh, i think i got into settlers sophomore year of college this must have been 2009. 10 ish time frame, and then I uh learned Citadels in 2011, I guess, when I was a senior in college. And I did do remember playing with you and a bunch of your friends that I became very good friends with in college. So that, that was uh that was kind of how we met. Board games brought us together, <laughs> yeah.
0: And I think the funny thing about that, you know, sometimes it's like the serendipity of that, right? Because if I didn't have board games with you and bring it over you would never have met your future roommates in the SFB area. And conversely as well, I would not have almost eight years later, I guess, become your roommate as well and Boston together.
1: Yeah, that's just how life is. And it's the serendipity of it all. Like Obviously, we have some shared interests, but... It was quite coincidental that we both happened to be in Boston eight years later and we became roommates. So that was uh, quite the journey. Yeah,
0: Well, it's good, good life advice to all the you know, people out there, right? It's you know, like hang out with overboard over board games, I guess. At that time, I remember, you know, I was part of the social impact consulting club called the Berkeley Group. I was the president. I was thinking to myself, I would either join the Gates Foundation or vaccine research. I think that's when I first met you. Eventually, I transitioned. I realized that they wouldn't really hire non-Americans. So I transitioned to as that's what my mentor told me, which was an interesting left road, right road kind of decision. For you, you went off to iBanking, right? At the time, you were a student body senator, and then you went into iBanking. So could you just tell us a little bit more about why you chose to go into iBanking at Goldman Sachs?
1: Great question. So uh, I think it's good to explain kind of my personal background. I'm sure people listening to this podcast will come from all different cultures, geographies, and social economic backgrounds. But uh, just to begin with, I immigrated with my parents to the U.S. when I was six years old. And growing up, like we didn't have a ton of money. We were never like destitute, but like we were definitely kind of lower middle class. And as I went to like elementary school, middle school, high school we gradually kind of climbed the economic ladder, kind of the typical American dream story. We actually bought a house like when I was in college. So very much so kind of just climbed the ladder American dream um, story. And because of the fact that I came up from a a background of not having a lot of money growing up, I knew only one thing that I wanted to do after I graduated college, which was I wanted to have a, a stable, like lucrative career. And of course, like, What can you do in college that at at this point, like 2010, 2011, the obvious path for someone who's business oriented is either consulting or investment banking. And I basically just chose investment banking because I think honestly, like it, it was more prestigious. It paid a little bit more. And obviously Goldman Sachs was a great brand that I was able to uh, get a job uh, at at that firm. So that's like the honest truth of like why I chose investment banking. I knew I wanted to work hard and like start my career on a good path and and make some money early on.
0: Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And I think the truth is that you and I both uh, chose at that time, I think the two most popular or cool jobs, I guess, remember on campus at the time, which was like, you know, McKinsey being BCG, MBB, management consulting, and you did iBanking, right? (laughs) So... Exactly. Uh, and now, you know, times have changed, right? I don't think they're the coolest jobs on campus anymore, especially with technology, you know, kind of like being there. And I think one thing I can take away from what you just said was like, yeah, I often tell people like, hey, people are like, I need to take this job because I need to cover my student debt, but I want to set up a startup. And I just, you know, and I just tell them like, there's absolutely no shame. I think you should be proud that you can get a job that's paying well, right? Just do it, right? And cover your student debt or, you know, help your family and then do the startup on the side, right? Uh, This time, you know, (laughs) your life is not over when you're 21.
1: Yeah, this is actually something that that I've thought a lot about. Like, this is something I care a lot about because I've done some reflection recently um, in the past, over the past few months, I've, I've had some more time to reflect since I left the CEO role of my last company, which is like, why didn't I do entrepreneurship earlier? And I actually wrote an essay about this. I write a blog. Uh, the essay is called The Privilege of Taking a Risk. And, uh, and basically, I think like there's like a U shaped curve, if you think, if uh, the way I think about it, like at the kind of the left, far left end, you have people so kind of destitute that you have no choice but to do entrepreneurship in like certain countries. You don't have a lot of options. On the other end, Like you have like grow up in like wealth, you have a trust fund and you might as well take a risk. The world is your oyster. And that's like, like a small percentage of people. And for most of us probably listen to this podcast today, we probably come from like middle-class ish backgrounds. And like, there's an opportunity cost to like taking risks, like we have, you know, our, our family to think about, we we really could use like a $150,000 job at like an investment bank or, or a software like big tech company, right. So not everyone can just take a risk and not have to think about the consequences. So I've been thinking a lot about that. And um, I, I'd like to and it's part of my maybe I'll talk about this later. That's part of my long term goal to like make entrepreneurship more accessible to more people. But that's separate from maybe like, the topic at hand.
0: Yeah. You know, I never thought about it that way. And I think that's really true, right? in My own family history is the same. My, you know, my grandfather immigrated from China and he was destitute, right? He was working on a plantation and he had to save money to, you know, set up his own small business. That's a story for another day. But he made entrepreneurship bet to set up a small business. Right. And if he hadn't made a decision, the truth is my father and on that side of family would never have been educated. And if so, then I wouldn't have made it, right? So I think the U shape curve to be honest, right? That's only possible because my grandfather was on the other end of the U-shaped curve. So I think that's a really good insight. I'm going to be definitely be using that and referring that. Uh, quickly, what's your website? People know where to find this.
1: Yeah, sure. It's uh, myfirstandlastname.com, Y-I-S-H-I-Z-U-O, com.
0: Great. And if you go to uh, Jeremyow.com, there will also be a show notes and transcript of this conversation. And it will also hyperlink to the essay itself, as well as the blog and his social media handles. So I think let's kind of like, you know, double click on that. So you know. That's where you kind of transitioned to becoming a founder, right? You know, at some point of time, right? So what was that? So you had carved out a few years of Goldman Sachs, i banking. I know. Did, I don't know. Did you sleep, ever, ever sleep under your desk? Made a lot of money. Go to the bars, I assume, in SF. Uh, but, you know, after that, what, what happened? I'm just kind of curious.
1: Yeah. I mean, it wasn't really about the money. It was more kind of like when you're in your 20s and you don't have a lot of ties, like you can do a lot of things. And I just thought, oh, like all these smart, ambitious people are like doing startups. Like, you know, it's obviously it's risky, but what do I have to lose? Let me give it a shot. And when I was still working in finance at the time, I was working in the nights and evenings. And the things I did, like, didn't really get me anywhere. It was like, I I wasted like thousands of dollars, like working with freelancers on different projects. I I just wasn't going about it the right way. I knew I wanted to like dive deeper into entrepreneurship. And I thought that, oh, business school is probably a good transition. And even if I don't end up doing entrepreneurship, you know, it's a good learning experience. Uh, I've heard great things about business school. And that's why I decided to apply. And I stumbled across, and I use the word stumble because I think it's like fortuitous almost the way like DeepBench, my last company, um, like came about, like I just happened to like come across customers given my previous kind of background. And during school, we started generating revenue and, and that's, that's how it all started.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth there. So before we go into like how the exec startup itself, but why the MIT MBA, you know, what appealed to you about it at that stage?
1: Yeah, I was actually I was deciding between a, a couple of options and I chose MIT because I mean, it's been so long I'm trying to trying to think like oh one God. reason was definitely the entrepreneurship ecosystem. Boston as a whole is, has a strong kind of um, entrepreneurship network. The, the culture is, is pretty strong there. It's a small city, the most actually the most like European city of all the um, all, all American cities, like very small, great public transportation, Like a college town for sure. Um, so I kind of like that. I also like kind of the, um, the small class sizes at MIT. I, we both went to UC Berkeley, right? It's like one of the largest universities uh, in the world. So large class sizes, a lot of things to do, and you can, you can really do a lot. But uh, I kind of wanted kind of that small, uh, smaller, more close-knit experience at MIT as well. So that's basically why I decided on MIT, and uh, I had a great experience.
0: MIT, tell us what it like. I always love the campus at mit right harvard is harvard because you know it's all the i don't know the ivy and the red brick it's very like in the movies but yeah, i actually found mit a very very fascinating campus because of like how smart everybody was i don't i mean harvard folks were <laughs> i'll say less smart <laughs> than the mit folks on campus i would say i don't know what do you think Ishii? what was it like being at mit
1: yeah that's 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 a good point i actually don't know if like anybody's less smart or more smart than the other i will say though like MIT has a reputation, like, you know, like, it's like scientists and engineers, like MIT has a reputation for being quote unquote nerdy. And I actually think it's a very valid uh, reputation. And I don't mean that in like a pejorative negative way at all. Like MIT is a place where you can be a nerd. And when I say nerd, I think that means kind of like you get to be your true self. You get to explore your own like niche interests. And I think the way like the system is designed, the courses, the uh just like the resources that are available, like there are a lot of like niche resources. You really have to just pursue it. And that's that's how MIT is designed. Like everyone is free to be like their inner nerd.
0: I think maybe just riffing on that, maybe I think MIT looks for really spiky people you know people who have like one giant spike in something right you know it's like you know nanophotonics which is i think one of my bosses he's a partner you know he did a undergrad master's phd in one thing right and i think harvard is much more like fuzzy (laughs) i don't know if that makes sense they tend to be a little more i guess you can say well-rounded is a you know nice way of saying it but i think mit is really spiky like you know you are really free to like nerd out and get really deep
1: on one 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 thing yeah perhaps i uh i haven't met that many people from hbs i I mean definitely like dozens uh and i think everyone's like generally like equally like everyone's like smart mit harvard and anywhere else like people on this on this uh listen to the podcast uh, i'm sure they could do well at either place so um it's it's hard for me to to, to tell exactly but i think you have a point there
0: yeah so let's uh go a little bit deeper so you're on campus you know you would hang out with your mba friends how how did deep benches an idea something like no, appear.
1: <laughs> yeah. So uh, deep end. So we are an expert network. We find experts on demand for like one hour phone calls, clients, customers pay us one price. We find the expert and pay them a lower price, and the difference is our profit. So it's it's a relatively straightforward, easy to understand business model. And I used to be like a customer of these things when I worked at an investment firm. You can imagine it's useful to be able to talk with people to learn about things and then use that knowledge to make investment decisions. So I saw an opportunity in this space, and I just thought, oh, okay, like if I see the opportunity, if I build a, a service product. If I can try to find potential customers, let's let's just get started. We have a business, and that's what we did. We found customers, told them we can help them, and enough of them gave us a shot, and we were we were just that's how it started. We started with kind of um, like an insight that customers needed this. We found the customers, sold them on a product that didn't exist yet, and once they gave us kind of like the mandate to hey find us some experts, we would execute on that request and find experts on demand. That's how Deep Bench began. And that's by and large still what we do now.
0: Let's zoom in even one layer deeper, right? Because some people want to know what the sure. founding moment was. Was it like, you know, you're in the shower and it just came to you? Or was it, to your best recollection, like, what was that journey of, like at least, the initial? hunch whatever that was
1: yeah okay i I like this digging into the past it was me myself and two other mit sloan classmates uh it was october 2016 we were brainstorming different ideas i remember deep bench was one of like eight ideas we have written on a, on like a, like a whiteboard. And we were just deciding, okay, which one should we explore? And I think we were exploring more than deep bench. And we just got the furthest with deep bench, the quickest we, I just started calling up my former colleagues, friends in the industry. And someone said, Hey, like, yeah, we need actually, we need experts right now. Can you find them for us? And that was it. Like, we, within a couple weeks, we found a customer willing to pay us thousands of dollars. And as business school students, like, this is like crazy. Like, all of a sudden, from like zero to like thousands of dollars in revenue, like, why not start a business around this? That's really how it started. Like, we were exploring ideas, and it just so happened, again, like, we got lucky. We got a customer. I think it was like a, a friend from Berkeley, actually. He was working for an investment firm, and he, happen to need our service at that point in time.
0: Yeah, I think I like that because, you know, you're just like very frank about it. And, I, you know, I think many people kind of look at startup ideas. And I think the press also likes to make it sound like the immaculate conception, right? You just came out of nowhere, yeah. right? You know, but I think, you know, I think there's almost every person is like, there's actually a very frontline, you know, search, very thorough, you know, like whiteboarding, you know, confusion, pivoting, switching, changing dynamic there's then early stages for every founder and i think it just doesn't write well right (laughs) you know know? no i don't i don't know like the president really says something like this great you know this great startup today was because this person spent five months working over a whiteboard with a couple of his student classmates to figure this shit out right you know
1: yeah i mean it gets messier than that like the two remember I, i told you i i was working with two like mit sloan classmates on that on that particular uh, on deep bench in like October, 2016 by November, one of them left and then another MIT classmate joined. And then in March, like one of, one of the original two people who was still with me, that guy left too. And we had picked up another person on the way. And then we added another person in April. So there's a lot of like messiness in the early histories of DeepBench. that you Google us and Google the history. It's like, Oh, four MIT co-founders started this, but that's actually, eh, that's not exactly true. Like, yes, by like April, 2017, there were four of us but three of them weren't there in October 2016. So it's, it's kind of funny how like it all, all comes about.
0: Yeah, that's exactly spot on. I think I had a similar experience at Gozikin, where we had a search process. We were initially targeting postpartum depression. Well, to be honest, we were initially targeting depression. Then we zoomed in on postpartum depression and then we figured out that they were depressed for you know, a multitude of reasons. I which the biggest one was lack of childcare and ability to go back to work. And then we decided to go for it and solve it from an education perspective. But you know, just that logic path alone shows there were so many ways we could have like gone to a different idea or different iteration, right? And you're right, I also uh, had different co-founders come in, not putting different candidates for co-founders work on different phases and go out and then you know, some of them have built successful startups of their own separately from this, right? But that doesn't compress well into into uh, the you know, the the 40 word introduction of the company. <laughs> On the company website or the press, right? I remember you reaching out, right? Because I was already at Harvard for MBA for a year already. I think you came in a year later uh, and you reached out. You're like, hey, dude, let's reconnect. And I was like, of course, right? And then we hung out probably at a a Chinese restaurant, I think.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was a, uh, what was that restaurant? Shanghai Fresh, I remember. Oh yeah, Shanghai Fresh was that That one? Yeah, that was great. That
0: was super dope. Uh, <laughs> this, yeah. uh, I was like the only legit of the Shanghainese food in, in, uh, in Boston. So yeah, I they stay in business. Uh, yeah, that's another matter. I was checking COVID, my maps, my fa- maps of favorite food and a lot of them are <laughs> not open anymore. Okay, Shanghai Fresh, great food, uh, highly recommend. <laughs> so we hung out and then we stayed in touch and I think about a year later, you know, around, I'll say, Probably when you hung out, I was already starting out with um, Ken already because you were a year, year in. I was just finished the planning and starting to work. And then I think somewhere along the way, you started to inform me about what you were working on and so, so forth. And then I hit my graduated from Harvard. I think you were still in Sloan. And I remember that I was like, I had basically decided that I wanted a room with other founders because I needed a peer support group. <laughs> and so, uh, which was nice. great, you know, because I was like with a whole bunch of different founders, like, uh, you know, Luna, Matt, just like uh, Rebecca, and actually all three of them, tremendous horsepower, great founders. You know, Luna figured out it was doing VR, and then Matt was doing some materials, got quiet. And then Rebecca obviously continued working on the social enterprise, also from UC Berkeley. But we both know her. Um, so we were living together, but I always remember that there was one bad thing about founders was that, you know, making rent <laughs> consistently and staying <laughs> in one spot was tough. You know, there's a reason why they want, like, you know, you know, you say you want your roommate to be a banker or like, you know, a steady job, right? You know, anyway. The startup founders, and then it turns out that I think you were looking for someone and then we ended up hanging out and then deciding to room together.
1: Yeah, I remember I graduated from MIT Sloan in June of 2018. That summer, I did an accelerator in San Francisco and I think I came back to Boston at the end of September, early October. And for those people who don't know, like Boston, like basically all leases begin and end on September 1st. It's very hard to find like housing in like October. And um, I ended up like finding a place to live on Craigslist. It was fine. It just wasn't like the best. Like I didn't, I mean, my roommates were friendly, but we weren't like super close. And I wanted to kind of move out after a couple more months. And it just so happened. I think, Jeremy, you got married in December of 2018. And I think it was at your wedding where we I, I was talking to you about, hey, I'm looking for to like move out. And you're like, oh, I'm looking for a roommate. And I think I moved in in like, January 2019. I, th- I think that's how it happened.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Actually, you just dropped my memory. I'm getting old. But yeah, that's exactly how it happened. Again, and I started to put this thing, right? It's like, if it didn't turn out that you're inviting to the wedding and you came over, we wouldn't yes. become roommates and then became really close during that time as well.
1: Yeah, maximizing serendipity. There, there's, uh, there's something to that.
0: I remember that you were great as a founder roommate. I mean, I think, you know, obviously there's a part where... <laughs> like No, it's good. Like, you know... Enough. You know, rating of roommate five out of five, right? You know, would recommend. <laughs> I'm again. glad
1: I, I, anyone listening to this. Uh, I don't know if I'll need a roommate again in the future, but you know, I, I, good to know. Good, good, good to, to know have that
0: cred. Yeah. yeah, you know, I think one thing that you shared that was interesting was that I found, of course, was like you know beyond the fact that you just you know straightforward, frank conversations around like financials and you know bit cleaning blah, blah blah. But I think we were both like as founders going through shit together, right? You know, and I think it was oh, like, a yeah. fun experience. Like you know, we would like come home and they were like look at discuss work you know but in a decompressed way right you know and i think that was an interesting set of conversations we had there
1: yeah yeah i actually one thing i uh, i really like was that you were like the social hub for me like you brought over like a lot of friends from like very diverse group of friends from like uh, mostly like people from like harvard mba but from all different like interest groups and uh, it was really like all like culturally ethnically like uh gender like very diverse group of friends and everyone's like super interesting so i, I really like that and uh I, I think i've told you this before but that, that was like one of the best parts about living with you as a roommate
0: yeah i know i think that's that's true and i guess it kind of carried on to today right i mean i think i didn't really self-identify that aspect of my own personality actually till like years later as part of the you know reflections that for the next career of my chapter yeah so i think there's a big part of it and i think that wouldn't have been possible to be honest without you Ishii, because you know, I think what i realized as well is like, you know, when I was, there was a stint where I was living by myself and I wasn't being social at all because I needed someone to have that, I don't know what's you know, what, co-pilot, <laughs> you know, I don't know what to call it, a co-host, <laughs> you know, a vibe, right? And I think it was great. And I think you brought some great people along as well right? on the MIT ecosystem, but also from the SF side, right? And I think, I think what I remember is like, we also had a whiteboard at home, right? And there was always a lot of impromptu sketching. Of random stuff and yeah. our conversations, either one on one or with the group.
1: Yeah, yeah, and no, it was good. Yeah, I, uh, I think yeah, you inspired me to like, kind of bring some friends together. I think so. We've, I'm sure people listening and 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 you probably have friends too, Jeremy. Who you know that they're friendly. They have a big social net circle, but they're like kind of separate, like purposely separate different social groups. They'll never like intermingle. And I think that's, that's a little bit of a shame because I think like, I love it when like my different friend groups overlap it. Like, I think it makes the the bonds stronger over time. And I think it becomes a richer relationship as a result. So I'm always like very, excited when like my friends introduce me to their other friends and I'm always like eager to introduce like my friends like like to to others as well so it goes both ways and I mean that's we're talking about like maximizing serendipity I think that's actually like a, a key aspect of maximizing serendipity just be like kind of Generally open to like intermingling, like who knows what will happen. So I think you're like one of the most inclusive people I've met, actually. And obviously, like you're you're starting this like brave dynamics, like this clubhouse thing. So I think that's really cool. It, it meshes with your personality very well.
0: Thanks so much. Hey, wouldn't have described it as my personality uh, years ago. I would probably describe myself as like, oh, I'm a founder, you know, I'm a CEO, you know, I'm a an MBA. <laughs> you know, these are the big like labels, and I got to play to those roles. Um, I think one interesting thing, yeah, you know, it's true. Like, I remember, you know, I was thinking improv as well, because after graduation, I wanted to have a hobby and everything. And, you know, I always remember that, you know, one thing I realized was that being a founder and CEO is not, you know, I think you have to obviously, to some extent, have the skills necessary to do it. But even if you don't feel like you're up for it in a moment, you just have to act and improvise as if what a tier one founder and CEO would do in that situation, right? You know what I mean? It's like, you know, when, some, when there's a really tough, I think decision-making, of course, is very different, right? Because that's, that's, um, that requires you to think through the problem and so, so forth. But I think when you're like dealing with tough interpersonal issues, right? Like there's uh, two people uh, debating or one person is very stressed and you know frustrated. Like, you know, I think even if we don't feel like it, even if you as, you know, Jeremy Al feels like you want to be just as frustrated, right? You know, or, or push back hard, depending on the situation, right? I think you have to improvise and act. What a type one founder CEO would look like. I think we discussed that a lot, right? You know, during those times as well.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm still learning it today, so I don't feel like I'm I'm qualified to really opine on what like a top tier like CEO does. I can only try to act in like it's situational as well. I'll try to do my best in every situation and just try to kind of like listen to people. I think that's the the biggest takeaway. And you kind of alluded to this too. If anything, um, over the years, I, I've gotten a lot better of like listening, being more kind of conscientious. Actually, like when I was back at when I used to work at like Goldman Sachs, and then uh, Solstein, I've gotten like, you know, like performance reviews, feedback reviews. And like, I did a 360 degree review, like right before I left Solstein. And I got like, my people at Solstein, the hedge fund I worked at, as well as like a bunch of my like closest friends from like different groups, former colleagues at Goldman to review me. And most common constructive feedback was like, Ishii e, needs to like listen better. Ishii e, needs to be more aware of the things he say. So I i I'm, I think I'm still working on it, but I've definitely gotten a lot better at it. I think part of that comes with one, just getting older, Two, it comes with kind of having had that like founder experience and made mistakes along the way. But uh, I think it's like something I've consciously tried to work on. And I think that's actually the most critical part of being a good leader in, in any sense, like any organization, being able to like listen to people and really understand what people are saying, like reading between the lines and so on.
0: I think you use this phrase was interesting called like, you know, you had to grow that skill, right? Being a father of a three, three-month-old daughter called Arden. Like, you know, one thing I, you know, we've, you know obviously being in early education as well for the last company, like you're aware that a human literally has to grow the ability to think of what other people are thinking of themselves. Like, literally, like a three month old cannot empathize. They cannot understand what the other person is thinking about them, right? They have no sense of other. So I love that sense of growing. It's like literally at zero years old, you don't have any ability. And so it's okay to still be growing that physically, biologically in your thirties.
1: Yeah. I mean, everyone talks about you. Everyone wants to be like a lifelong learner and like learn like throughout their lives. It's easier said than done. Like, how do you actually become a lifelong learner? Like things that I've started to do and I continue to try to do and I hope I'll continue doing in the future is like, like I have like an executive coach like that. I, you know, I'm pretty frugal guy, but I actually pay decent money for that. It's like in the hundreds of dollars per hour and one of the most expensive things I pay for. And. Uh, it's very useful for me personally. And I, I seek out like mentors and sometimes the mentorship is, is like a book. I'll like read. I read a lot. So it's reading has helped me over the years as well.
0: Uh, that's so good. And I think something you opened up my eyes on was like you really opened up a whole stack of like books, reading articles that were really like deeper in thought, right? They acted as intellectual role models. I love to hear more about those role models that were churning out these materials that you're always sharing with me.
1: Oh, yeah. Or, or, so you're looking for like, like book, good books, I, I might recommend.
0: Well, you know, both right? Good books and your role models. Oh, yes. I mean, there's a big, Venn diagram overlap for you on this one.
1: Yeah, yeah. I can talk about books. Second, I, I love to talk about role models first, because I think like, because you, you had mentioned you might ask me that and I actually put a little bit of thought into it. You said, especially uh, I think in your, in your directions, like, hey, like think of real people, not like Warren Buffett, people, people like that. So I actually to do some thinking. I, I thought of three people and uh, these three people people—they actually I consider them my peers. They both like teach me something different. But I think like, it's, it's very telling. And there's there's something similar for all three of them. I'll go through them very quickly. So the first is a, a guy named um, J.S. Cannon. He's a friend from business school. He's not an entrepreneur, but I've learned a lot from him, like professionally. He's like, super like polished and proper like he's uh good at a lot of the small things in life that make a big difference like and as an example he'll like send me and all his friends like close friends like holiday cards regularly he'll like always remember to like wish you like happy birthday like all these like small things that frankly i'm not very good at like if i tell him something like oh like my mom is like doing this or that like a few weeks later he'll ask like oh ishi how's your mom doing i'm like holy crap, like, how do you remember this stuff? It's like more so than anyone I met, like he's just really good at that stuff. He really cares about his friends and like pays attention to details. So like he's a role model for me in that sense, because I try to, I'm trying to, I'm getting better at this stuff, but I'm really like learning from him on that one aspect. So that's like, Role model number one. My second role model, his name is Eric. Uh, I, I don't think he'll want his last name mentioned. So I'll just, I'll just say that for now. He's, uh, he's a friend from high school. Like we had a mutual friend, Eric and I, who's um, like pretty sick. He had like cancer or something a few years ago. And um, Eric visited him like multiple times in the hospital, like visited him more times than anyone else, like in our friend group, like there was like four or five of us combined. And like, I, I don't know, I was like, always found excuses, or I just didn't even think much about it. But uh, Eric was like, there for our friend, like more so than any of us combined. And um, he's just a really like loyal, dependable guy. Like later on, he helped that friend, as well as like another friend from high school that I, I don't know as well, but he helped like multiple of his friends from high school get hired at this company he was at. And, um, and he's just a guy that really cares about his friends, like really loyal and reliable and like, Someone you can just count on. And he's one of my best friends in high school. And for me, he's a role model because he keeps me grounded and uh just someone like I I actually look up to in, in many ways. So so that's like my second role model. And then um the third role model, so I won't say his name for now, but he was my roommate for a brief period. He was always like super social and brought a lot of people together. And I uh, probably guess it's it's you, Jeremy. So beyond like kind of like the, the surface level stuff, I think the stuff you do, and this is where it gets a little bit deeper, is that it's like super intentional. Like things you do kind of feed into each other, like, like, like brave dynamics, like this, your, your podcast and your personal brand and what you're doing now, like Clubhouse, it's like also very aligned with your personality and you're like building a community. And that's obviously very valuable as a business. Like you work at a VC. So there's a lot of like scalability, like cool stuff about that, that I see as well, but it's also very aligned with your personality, which is very important if if you want to be like genuine and honest and even like, before like years and years ago, like you were like, I think one my first like close friend that started doing entrepreneurial things, I think like it was like what like 2013, 2014, you were like, or maybe 2012, you were working on like conjunct. And like you were the first person I saw like doing anything entrepreneurial. You kind of like like paved the path kind of like just like not directly, but like you show me that like, oh like people are doing this. Like I didn't grow up in like a super like business entrepreneur environment. Right. Like, so I I paid attention, like the people that I followed emulated were people like you. So, uh, so I think that was, you were kind of a role model in that sense. And, um, I think you were like the first person, one of the first people I was close friends with who had their own domain name, like jeremyow.com. I, I don't know what year you registered that, but uh, I think I registered mine like, just like a few years ago and now more and more people are doing it. But like, you were like thinking about your personal brand, like way before anyone else. So like you, you're always like a, just like an early adopter of this stuff. So, and now like I'm on clubhouse now, so I'm following your lead again. So, so we'll see how this goes. So, uh, so yeah, I thought you're like, you're a role model in, in that way. You're very intentional and um, you are, are big about like your personal brand and, and very aligned, but very genuine, I think. So everyone I mentioned, like my first friend, Jay Ash from business school, Eric from high school, you, like, you guys are all like, what makes you guys similar, what ties it together is like, you guys are all like very caring people, like very open, like you bring people together, care about your friends. Yeah, I know that, that was my thinking around like role models.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Ishii. I- Obviously I'm really inspired by the other role models, and I'm also very touched by you saying that I'm one of yours. you know I think in that obviously we can talk a little bit more about why and so, so forth, but I think maybe um, one thing that came up to me was this like you know I really enjoy being with other founders, right and I really help hang out, getting feedback from them, giving them feedback you know' just like that like like Army, buddy, kind of feeling, you know? Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think that's why you've been a role model for me too, right? Because you were the first person I knew personally who was doing deeper thinking, right? (laughs) You know, like, because you were writing the articles, your hobby on the side was like, Oh, like I want to write and think through uh, this, I want to say theory, right? You know, but this framework or this way, I always appreciated. And we would riff on those ideas together. And I think, you know, where I am today is very much because of that, you know, year and a half we spent, you know, rooming together because, you know, I got to, you know, basically learn from you, basically about what it means to be a thought leader uh, on one angle, uh, but also get to hang out with you and just kind of like have that creativity and, Camaraderie together.
1: Yeah, I think just having the right people in your life like can make a big difference. And I think like you were very again intentional about like you wanted to live with like co-founders. I I, like was living with people off Craigslist, and like it's worked out for me in the past. Like I just didn't put as much emphasis on on that. Now as I grow older, I'm like putting a lot more emphasis on that. More thoughtful, more intentional about like the types of people I live with and spend time with. So that's actually, I mean, I've, I've learned that over the years. But you know, like we all do things that work for us, like. We all grow, like it's part of serendipity, right? Like I'm like pretty carefree with a lot of things. So like over time, like you realize like what really matters, what doesn't. And it's just like different personalities. Like I tend to focus on like certain things, like um, big picture things a little bit more.
0: Yeah, I think serendipity is a you know key phrase here, right? Because, you know, I think it's underrated, I think, because I think, you know, obviously a big part of it today is this about how do we become more intentional, right? <laughs> you know, versus the default. But I think a way to be intentional is to look to maximize your own serendipity So that's really key. I think, how have you been looking to maximize serendipity in your life?
1: Oh man, that's that's a great question. I think I'm putting, I think first and foremost, kind of like doing some introspection, thinking about what I really want, because even if like you want to have serendipity, like the world is so vast, like you still got to like be a little bit more focused so that like your energy, like the serendipitous energy that's like, generated like kind of generally pulls you in like a certain direction and for me it's like okay i want to like be an entrepreneur i want to start businesses and i want to invest so if i want to like build a personal brand to attract more of that stuff like i could write but i can write more things that are more like investing oriented or like entrepreneurship oriented so i do write but i'm also like somewhat intentional with with what i put out there i'm i'm conscious about kind of like how I spend my time working on those skills. Like I recently joined this, like this um, writing like collective called compound writing. It's like, you know, hundred bucks a month, like 300 bucks uh, a quarter or something. And I think they got, they recently announced like YC funding. Um, so there, it's like a big, like, bigger thing. If, any writers out there it's like a private like community where people help each other edit and become better writers so that's like an investment i'm making in myself because no matter what i do i don't i don't know like if i'll be investing in startups like forever ever i don't know if i'll be like like starting companies from scratch forever ever but i do know that i want to be writing for a long time so i it is something that i want to get better at so that was like an intentional investment in my skill set so like, it, it's like a balance between just like doing random things because, because it's like, I, I don't need like extra impetus for me to like, like do random things. That's, that's going to be a part of my personality no matter what. If anything, like, I need to focus like my randomness a little bit more by being more intentional. So I don't know if like that fully answers your question, but um, it just, it really depends on like what you need and what your you know, weakness is actually. For me, it's like, I probably need to be a little bit more focused. Well,
0: I think it's interesting because, you know, I've been, that uh, organization that you formed the title optionality partners was very easy when you first announced it. I was, <laughs> like, I was like, this is a topic you've written about. This is a topic we've discussed about in our pajamas. And this is something that I get really see is really important to you. Right. So tell us more about, you know, like optionality partners, like like more less about what it does, because you've explained it before, but why the name optionality partners?
1: Yeah, so I think it comes about for, for my own entrepreneurial journey. I as a founder, I've been in positions where we had to like do things a certain way, like we had to raise money to keep the company going, and had to like have co founders had to do this had to do that. And honestly, like, there were certain mistakes I made that if I had something like optionality partners that gave me, like to use lack of a better term, more optionality, I think like things would have turned out like even better, or like certain mistakes I've made in the past like wouldn't have made. So it's really about like alignment with like individuals. That's kind of where it all comes from. It comes from my own personal experience.
0: That reminds me of many founders and VCs are very much like, you know, you got to burn the boats, right? You know, I use that analogy quite a bit often as well. Like you got to burn the boats on the beaches so that there's no way but to attack and win All right
1: oh yeah yeah i mean I, I could go on for a while about like the misalignment between like vc investors as well as uh like individual founders i think you know this quite well jeremy so we can it's mean, probably take up another whole podcast but you just look at like the for listeners out there if you're curious like look at the um the funding like the incentive structures the fee structures of like all the VC funds and like one of the sayings is like follow the incentives. Like what, where the incentives will lead you to kind of the outcomes that you get. So it's very telling, like how how the fund structures are, the fees are set up.
0: We sh- we have to go into it a little bit. now that you have this juicy thing, and then yes, we will have another podcast on on a little bit more. But you know, I think first off, you're right, right, because. We have all these like great VCs, right? We have Sequoia, we have Benchmark, all these great names um, that are out there. Obviously, Monks Hill as well. And then we also have companies that are great thought leaders, right? And community builders, like Y Combinator, First Round Capital. They're doing tremendous thought leadership and, and so on and so forth. And we just see the facade of it, which is, and I think there's a real heart to it because of how they select, but I think no one's really talking about the business model about what they're doing as well, right? And so it's interesting to see that if I listen to the CEO of Exxon Mobil, right, you know, say something, I would take it with a grain of salt, right? Does it make sense, you know? Right. <laughs> and then if I listen to the the CEO of Nike, I would also take it with a grain of salt, right? And if I listen to the you know lead investor. Um, or like of an incubator, then suddenly I kind of like switch it off, right? For some reason. So Ishii, so you want to talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think like everyone is going to have their biases. Like I'm biased, like everyone is biased. So you just have to like take everything with kind of like a grain of salt. With respect to kind of like VCs, and it's just not, not just VCs, but like like a lot of like large mutual funds have this issue too, where they make more money from the management fee than they do from the carry. And the incentive is to like, just not rock the boat, like get as much AUM assets under management as possible. So that's kind of the short of it. And that like in the startup world, like leads to certain incentives. Like if like you want to like make bets that like don't pay off for a long time, you want people to take bigger, bigger bets. It drives valuations up, but are you actually generating revenue? And like arguably, like maybe it doesn't really matter, but um, it, it's just like a different different mentality. And that's not exactly, I mean, I'm like, I, I don't know if like, I want to build that kind of startup again, or that's the type of startup that makes sense for me to like fund. But there there are other ways that I've discovered, like learned over the years, like other ways of creating businesses that create more optionality for the founder.
0: Yeah. Coming out on time here, but you know, I think that's a such a great insight. And like I say, I wish I had another hour to go with you into that. But I think what's I think what you reminded me of is that you're one of the few people who have. Understanding of both sides of the VC side, right? Like as the Hedge Fund and at like Goldman Sachs, you saw what LPs do, what they're requiring of GPs. You actually see GPs acting as financial stewards of the money <laughs> that the LPs have put money together for. And so you actually see how it flows downwards as an industry. But yeah, I you know, I think so. I think that's one angle that I think we really need to <laughs> delve into a future podcast together. But I think the second part of it is really true, is like, You know, VC is only one way of setting up a business. And I think that differentiates, to be honest, from my perspective, like good VCs who are picking and obviously sourcing VC deals and startups and investing in them and being a good picker. But I think the great human VCs are very, I think, humble and very aware and very clear that raising VC money is not the only way to build a great business. And they're not only able to say that out loud. But be able to say that to the right company that comes along, that's kind of figuring it out and just saying like, you know, maybe we're not, you know, you know don't chase, don't chase the dream, right? You know, don't chase the dragon. I think that's what they, they say.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I've definitely met a lot of great VCs like in the past and I'm friends with any of them. So I definitely respect what they do. I think I, it's just not exactly the type of approach that I'm taking with optionality. And to your point, yes, there's not a lot of people I know that came from like a hedge fund, like an a- analyst background and also like started like an operational, like startup business. If you know any, I'd love to love to talk with more of them. Um, it's obviously like a interesting blend of skill sets. Like as an investor, you like kind of go like broad across different kind of industries, like use the mental models and become a better investor. It's like all about pattern recognition. And then as an operator, obviously you got to delve deep into the details. Like you got to get into the nitty gritty. And then there's also like motivating a team, communicating the vision, all that kind of stuff. It's very much so a, a different kind of like skill set, sometimes at odds with like being an investor. Like as an investor, you have to be like very rational. As a CEO of an early stage company, you have to like sell the vision and like grow into that. So it's kind of like reflexive, uh, reflexivity. It's like one of those, like, I think George Soros came up with that term. But anyways, so so there's there's a little bit of like tension there, but it's, you know, I've, I've done both sides of it. It's kind of interesting.
0: Well, coming on time here in the next uh, one minute, could you share, if you could go back in time, uh, you know, 10 years ago, so that means we were like, what, juniors at that t- point of time? <laughs> you know, or you was a senior year, right? What advice would you, uh, you know, give Ishi year, 10 years ago?
1: That's a good question. I, uh, I've, I, I don't know if I've thought too deeply about that. I think it's... I would have started writing earlier because writing I write not I I have like small following not a huge following I write largely because it helps me think and it's helped me like clarify my thoughts and become a better like thinker become a better leader in many ways. I would have started like a blog like 10 years ago that would have been I think very helpful for me like in many ways. So that's that's the advice I give myself 10 years ago at age 21.
0: And how would you give that advice? Would it be over coffee? Would it be over beer? How would you give that advice? Would you be very kind? <laughs> would you be very like you know top down like you should do this?
1: I I probably yeah I mean I, I would over coffee over beer um it, I, it's a good setting to give that kind of advice.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ishi, for uh, you know
1: sharing that you have. Okay. <laughs> I'm here with you, you Ishii. Okay. All right. Bye bye.